Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society. And this podcast is part of that effort. Today, we've got a normal partner meeting. Uh, Fong does a deep dive into the concept of minimum viable product. Uh, whether you're a first-time entrepreneur or a serial entrepreneur, I think it's worth a good revisit. This is one of the best ways to save your time and not waste uh, a lot of effort on a bad idea. And Chris and I do a policy debate around bank runs and get an update on what's going on in the market with that. And before we dive in, just want to give you a, a quick heads up. On this Wednesday, May 3rd, we are hosting Is This a Thing? That's an activity we do at Interplay where entrepreneurs with really early stage ideas, concepts, come on. They share them with a group of VCs. It's the Interplay Partnership. And the hope is to like really spitball early on and save people time if the idea is not really legit, poke holes, find opportunities for more research, or validate. If it's the right idea, start a real conversation. So if you're into that, check it out at interplay.vc slash is this a thing? And without any further ado, let's dive in. Hello, Fong. What do you got for us this week? Well, this week I have a really exciting topic. So last week we talked about how to validate your business idea before you sink a bunch of resources into building a product. Today, I wanted to talk about the next part of that process. So after you validate your idea, how do you go about planning your MVP or minimum viable product? So I'm sure everyone knows this, but as a reminder, your MVP is the version of your product that has just enough features to validate your business idea. So then again, you're not investing a lot of time, money, and resources upfront, building out a bunch of unnecessary features for an unproven concept. So the first thing to keep in mind is that you should launch your MVP quickly. Don't spend too much time over-researching, over-planning, making it too perfect. The best way to learn more is to put something, anything, in front of potential customers and have them give you feedback on it. So at this point, figure out what the very core features are. Condense it down to the very simple set of things that solve the user's most critical problems. I'm sure there are a lot of other problems that you could solve, but now is not the time to do it. Just roadmap it and build it later on. You'll see that you'll probably maybe never even build it because the valuable learning you get from the earliest MVP will give you insight that you don't have now. So really think of the MVP as a very simple base from which you test and iterate into your final product. So then how do you determine what these core set of features are? Start by defining the user journey. So what's the process your customer will go through to get the desired outcome from your product? Um, what are the pain points they'll encounter during this journey? So using this information, make a list of features that will make this journey possible. And then, Mark, don't get too excited because I know how much you nerd out on these. Make a Gantt chart. Oh, so so happy. <laughs> I know, I know. Love it's a good Gantt chart. So uh, a Gantt chart basically plots the importance of each feature against the effort needed to build it. So then you prioritize the features that are important to that are important and easy to build, and then conversely deprioritize features that are not important and hard to build. Then go and build quickly. And then once you have your MVP, you test it. And how do you do that? Well, first set the objective, objectives for your test. What are you looking for? How do you measure success? Some metrics to consider are user engagement, how long a user is spending on the product, the frequency of usage, 
uh, conversion rate. So this can be conversion on any number of actions, such as signing up, making a purchase, or completing a task. Retention rate, uh, customer satisfaction. So this is going to be super important. You can gauge this with surveys and by speaking to customers. It'll really allow you to understand how satisfied customers are and where you need to improve. And then after you set your goals, go and test your MVP, gather feedback, and analyze the results. Now, try to understand whether your product is actually solving the customer pain point you set out to, to solve. So the important thing here, if it turns out that it's not solving the original problem, iterate on and improve the product to solve the original problem. I think a lot of founders fall in love with their product. And then when it turns out it doesn't solve the problem, they tend to change the problem to match the product. And now you're moving away from that problem that you already identified was a critical pain point that was a really big opportunity um, to another problem that hasn't been validated. Uh, so remember, iterate on your product to make it better solve your customer problem, then test it again, gather feedback and iterate, and then do it again and again and again, until you have a product that you feel confident about, and then you launch that to a wider audience. And that's generally the, the process that we, that we use. This is so much easier said than done. This is one of the hardest yes. things in starting a company. You know, yeah, hey, uh, make a smaller product. That sounds so easy. I do less work. Great. Uh, the reality is people fall in love with a the solution they're building. And the idea of gutting the product is what it feels like, of doing less, doing the bare bones, the absolute minimum to solve the problem and really confirm customer demand feels counterintuitive. And I think a lot of the reason it's hard is founders will say, hey, uh, I don't want to take out this feature set because some people won't use the product. And the headline is, that's okay. The way to think about it, from my perspective, is there's like this demand curve out there of customers that will use your product that opens up as you add features. Right. What you want to do is just crack open the tip of the iceberg of customers with the core feature, the first feature set. If they use it and they're psyched about it, of course, when you add more features, more people will adopt. That's a given. You don't need to appeal to every customer on day one. You appeal to a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche. So this is the big thing. It's very hard. I work with incredibly experienced veteran, super smart people, and everyone has trouble reducing the product to be the bare bones. I think it was Mark Twain who said, if I had more time, this would be shorter, like in reference to a letter. <laughs> uh, it's a challenging thing to be brief and summarize and to sacrifice concepts. This is a little bit painful and brutal. And you have to go at this with real intention and effort if you're really going to cut this down to a bare minimum. This doesn't happen by accident. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things as we're working through um, our uh, MVPs with our incubator companies, I always have to keep myself honest, right? Like, Because it's really hard to say, yeah, and then add this and add this. And if we don't have this like uh, critical mass of features like, and we get bad feedback, or, then it's not going to be ind indicative of the end product. But I think to your point, you're just, you're going to make it better. It's not the end product now. You have to kind of test and iterate your way into this end product. And then that's going to really solve you a lot of headaches in the long term. If 1% of the customers will use your MVP and you know the other 99 will, if you add more features, 
Just test on those 1%. Thank you, Fong. Thank you. Chris, good to see you, buddy. You almost died uh, doing indoor skydiving. <laughs> uh, contrary to what Marcus said, I think I did pretty well. Uh, you, you, thank you. It, thank you. You were complimented it. by the instructor for having perfect form on your first go. Only when I'm stable, yes. When I start to turn, that's when things go a little south. You know, it is what it is. You got to start somewhere. That was uh, uh, Chris, one of Chris, Chris's birthday present for uh, getting older. We went indoor skydiving. I was trying to like get rid of him, seeing if he would fly up into the blender of a fan, but it didn't uh, didn't work out that way. It turns out the safety procedures are, are real. So and that will be one hell of a way to go. I think you won't yeah. even feel it. It would just be so insane. It would be so quick. Yeah. That fan is no yep. joke. <laughs> All right, that's a creepy conversation. Let's uh, let's jump in. What do you have for us on global macro? Yeah, macro is a lot less creepy this week. Uh, actually, hold that thought. That's not true. As we talk, as we're talking. Um, there's a story developing as we, as, as, you know, as, as, as we're recording on FRB, it looks like at this juncture, it's, it might just be another bank to fail. Um, it's, it's looking increasingly likely that it will be an FDIC receivership, um, today or, or over the weekend and, uh, or as early as next Monday. Shares is now trading at, uh, I think $3. Um, last time I checked, it's down 50%. On the day, and um, you know, clearly not good. Um, people were were fearful after the recent 8K release, uh, of, you know, last last sort of last quarter's earnings, where FRB basically indicated they lost over 72 billion of deposits um, and, and more. So it's uh, it's not looking great. So the banking crisis is not over yet, as we sort of discussed. That this is going to take more of a medium term to get sorted out and. You know, just, just sort of another stat I, I, I saw this week uh, indicated as such that um, remember the sort of the FDIC revolving credit facility that was set up in the aftermath in the aftermath of SVB. Yeah. Uh, the borrowing is still increasing by mostly regional banks. So wow. they increased by 11.3 billion this past week uh, to a total of 155. So it, it's certainly being digested still. Can we find any solace in the fact that, you know, there it seemed like there are three or four failures in rapid sequence over the course of a week. Yeah. And this is at least a month or so later. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is that signal that maybe this is working its way through the system? Yeah. But the, the, the shock event has already happened or is this going to catalyze another shock? Does this create another earthquake? Uh, so I think the way you just, phrased it was pretty pretty accurate. It's, it's working its way through the system. It's not going, to, in my opinion, it's not going to create a massive shock just because the big banks, the both brackets, are doing incredibly well. They've received uh, billions of deposits. Their balance is strong. Earnings came out great. Uh, this is not 2008. But regional banks, uh, a different story. It is definitely working through regional banks because everyone has to ask themselves, why am I leaving my money in a bank that doesn't have nearly a strong balance sheet. And, and I didn't think about that risk before, now I have to think about it. So everyone's still moving. It seems like people are still moving money into big banks. It doesn't apply to every single regional bank. There are some banks that came out with, with interest, very, very good earnings, in fact, that their, their deposit base decreased, of course, in the aftermath of, in the aftermath of, of SVB, but has since recovered. Um, 
so so if this is to me, you know, it, it will take a few more months, and there could be other banks that fail in the process, but it should not create um, any more of a contagion, contagion than it already is. Is there any reasonable policy that could put an end to bank runs? And I'm not talking about protecting equity holders in the banks yeah. to make bad decisions. Deposits. Uh, I'm talking about really protecting deposits. I yeah. mean, you've got this plan now where FDIC covers 250K in a bank account. Yeah. And everyone's basically gaming it, right? There's these sweep mm-hmm. accounts where you, I think yeah. the latest is you can put up to $200 million in and yeah. it spreads it across a whole bunch of accounts. But if you don't do that, you, you lose your money on a technicality. Yep. Um, and there's not a lot of reason to stay with any one vendor over another. Yeah. It's a commodity. Yep. Is there a policy here that the government could mm-hmm. do so we could have a stable banking system that doesn't create some sort of perverse yeah. incentives? That is the biggest question to ask, I think, um, after all this. Look, you, I, first of all, let's just make this super clear, right? We're not talking, like you said, we're not talking about equity holders here. Uh, equity holders take their own risk, right? Uh, if their investment goes to zero, so be it. We're talking about just depositors who are in these banks not to take any risk whatsoever. Um, how to protect them? Well, I personally think the the, the government, the regulators, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC actually fa- failed their jobs uh, leading up to SPB. I think they could do a much better job going forward if they learn from their mistakes. And as opposed to you know using these sort of you know pre-de- predefined ratios to judge liquidity profile and deposit strength and liability versus assets, they need to actually go deeper and just have a more common sense check on the mark-to-market value of the asset side of these banks, right? They need to actually go into the MBF, you know, the, the mortgage-backed securities, the, the treasuries that are, that are not being mark-to-market and think that, hey, if anything were to happen, let's say a 20%, some sensitivity analysis, right? 20, 30% withdraw in the deposit base overnight, can the bank actually, without help from the FDIC, Federal Reserve, and, 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 and other banks or consortium of private equity, can the bank by itself survive the so-called bank run? I think that wasn't done in a proper way because a lot, you know, most, mostly due to the fact that, that these sort of, you know, sec- these securities that are supposed to be mark-to-market were not treated as mark-to-market securities. So, there's definitely more the regulators can do, it, it, to, to, to put it simply, to protect depositors. And, what's the and argument there's only, against, yeah. What's the argument against having FDIC insure all deposits? You don't have to do a sweep account Gosh. or a technicality. No, I'm yeah. asking the question. Not the equity yeah. holders, but if, if you yeah. knew as a depositor that, hey, the bank can be mismanaged and my deposit's not going away, yeah. it does remove the bank run, right? You don't, when you get, some email from somebody that, hey, the bank's in trouble, you don't move your deposits, which creates this psychological concept that's self-fulfilling mm-hmm. that kills the bank. Yeah. So it would at least create deposit stability. Now, it will, for sure. It, it, that's it, the cleanest way. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me put one thought on it. And you know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm sure there's reasons why it doesn't work or mm. it creates some problems. But the actual need for FDIC to insure deposits, if the banks are regulated well, in addition to that, you would assume would be pretty low 
because the runs are, ca- are caused by people being afraid their deposits are at risk. So if their deposits are never at risk, mm-hmm. runs don't happen. The only real question is the balance sheet being managed properly. And that seems easier to govern, even though there's yeah. questions about it, than yeah. trying to control a herd of customers who are acting on emotions and, pre- and mm-hmm. perceptions. So what you just said makes sense from the protecting depositors angle, for sure. I agree. That's the cleanest way. It will solve most of the bank run problems. The problem with what you just suggested, and I'm sure the regulars have considered this before. Yeah. Uh, number one is a balance sheet problem, right? That's a lot of money. But of course, you can you can argue that that's you know no you're not going to have a systematic bank run if that, that's in, in the in place that policy is in place in the first place. So you will never need to tap that balance sheet, right? The biggest argument I have against what you suggested is that it encourages risky behaviors from the banks. You're effect- the government effectively you're giving the all all banks in, in, in the U.S. not just the big banks but the less regulated regional banks a blank check saying whatever you do, you can you know we're going to guarantee your deposit base. If right, they, they still if, go bankrupt, if, right? If they if they make risky investments, don't they? They still lose all their equity. The, well, act, the owners less, and yeah. management of the companies, all of the people who are shareholders, I'm not proposing protecting that. That's capitalism. You can lose yeah, your yeah. money. That's the game. Here's the thing. They won't, though. They won't. Why? Because none of the banks that failed along the way were insolvent. Let's make that, make that clear. Their assets were greater than liabilities at all times. That never, the, the insolvency never was an issue. The issue was liquidity. So by having FDIC coming in and guaranteeing off deposit, you're basically telling them, Going forward, none of the banks will ever have a liquidity problem. So mm. as opposed to you know, lending out 80% of the deposit base, banks are now effectively have a free blank check and they can just go out and lend out 99% of the deposit base and have much higher earning. I'm sure, I'm sure there, you can put some, you know, yeah. some, some risk. Is there a hybrid around. policy? I'm just asking the question, like, is yeah. there a policy? It seems like part of the solution on the outside is some sort of insurance around deposits because it changes this whole bank run this this bank run is a, is an anomaly in business in many yeah. ways right this mm-hmm. whole concept it's unique to this industry it would it, it it's possible but it's the akin to like no one going to target on the same day ever shopping like day, tomorrow no one ever walks into target again that's what's yeah. happening they all stop buying revenue goes to zero that's not a normal paradigm yeah. so the question is is there some sort of supplemental legislation or regulation that mm-hmm. would enable a policy like that to not be crazy um, I to be so. productive i don't know it will be a very complicated it would be complicated. Uh, it would be complicated it will be filibustered it will be it will be it will be it will take years for it to be implemented and and, and properly and without triggering any sort of uh, uh, let's just say wrong incentives it can be done uh, will it be done is a different question. I, I, I personally believe this will be too difficult politically to implement. Um, but yes, in an ideal world, I, I see, I yeah, definitely see your point, and I think it, it can be done. Okay. So that's FRB. Uh, and that's just that's one a of rabbit the few hole. things that happened. Yeah. It is a rabbit yeah. hole, and it is important people should pay, t- pay attention to it. Let's see. I'm hoping that some rescue package can come in, and because FRB is, uh, Frankly, uh, they didn't do nearly as much wrong as the rest of the banks, SVB included. And, and the fact that they're failing is, 
it is it's sad. just collateral damage, right? They're just getting yeah. shell shocked because they're associated with the ones that Correct. stepped on landmines. Got it. Yeah, personally, I will more than I'll be very happy to see a rescue package coming in. So beyond that, the rest I'm just going to you know sort of quickly go through. You know, it's been a very busy week on the macro level for uh, macroeconomics level for U.S. We had bank earnings or we had tech earnings that came in stronger than expected. The theme there is that pretty much everything uh, was rosy, um, but different pockets are doing you know sort of differently. So for instance, generally you know ads is going strong, international business is going strong, but cloud seems like it's slowing down a little bit for some of these tech, tech, top tech companies. But overall, top line and bottom line are very strong for the tech industry. So you're seeing an outperformance in that sector, as we sort of talked about uh, over a month ago. After you we did have call out- this, to be fair. Yes. You did call this. Yes, so. I did. Uh, I even name a few names, uh, Microsoft right. included, and uh, right. look what's happening there. But although the story there has been more user credit. <laughs> um, so we do have FOMC next week. So just to make sure everyone's aware of that, uh, FOMC, you know, where the Fed is going to decide on what to do with interest rate markets. It is 100% priced in at this point that there's going to be another 25 basis point hike, bringing us to 5 to 5.25% range um, in overnight rates. This is on the back of, you know, the PCE inflation data, which is, again, Fed's preferred, most preferred gauge of inflation that came in at around 4.6%, 0.3% month on month which is still ahead of or higher than the 2% target that, that the Fed is waiting for. We are, the inflation is coming down, we're at, at about one third of the peak, but is not near 2%. So I think the Fed is going to stay on course. I'm hoping they will slow down um, even more so going into the next FOMC meeting, not this coming up one next week, but um, there's chance that they can hike another 25 basis point, bringing us to basically 5.5, the highest we've seen since the 2008 crisis. Um, so I think that's probably going to be what's moving markets going into next week, and most of the attention is going to be on that. Um, but you know, overall, the economy is 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 doing okay. GDP came came in also this week. Is weaker than Q4, but a lot of that, you know, you have to really dig in. Consumers are really strong. People are still spending money. It's most of it. Most of it is basically businesses pulling back on spending, so, which which is very reasonable after after a very busy Q4 uh, recovery from COVID. So yeah, that's where we are. That's where we are. The country is going strong, and, and tech is leading the leading the sort of the the, the pack here. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mark. Talk to you next week. And a reminder for everybody, Chris is an SEC-registered REA, so nothing he said should be misconstrued as investment advice. A lot discussed today. Uh, There's always ongoings with market dynamics and policy. Uh, If anything sticks to the bones, I hope it's the minimum viable product discussion. Uh, That is just one of those things that is so core to being a time-efficient entrepreneur And at the end of the day, even though it might not always feel like it, the number one resource constraint in your life is time. Uh, Quick heads up, next week we're going to do a deep dive on some new learnings about China. Uh, My partner Chris was born and raised in China, came over at 17, uh, and just went back to visit family after having been gone for four years. He came back with his eyes popping. 
lot has changed. He's going to take us through that. Stand by, uh, and that'll be a little bit of a special episode. We'll catch you next week.